again, everyone. We're back for another episode of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler, your host, and my guest today is the stalwart Jay Therrell, who is the president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, here to do some updates on all things disaffiliation. I don't know about you, Jay, but if I never heard that word again, I'd be okay. I'll be honest. Uh, I won't cry when I don't ever hear that word again either. I, I imagine there are many, many people on both sides that feel that way. Yes, that along with unprecedented, so maybe unprecedented disaffiliations uh, we can strike from the vocabulary when we get to that point. But there's a lot going on, and we had some developments yesterday. So as we were talking about before, I think we should start with the Court TV version of the show where we talk about all the lawsuits and things that are going on across the connections. So what updates can you give us? I would encourage folks to go to our blog. Uh, if you don't know where to find it, it's at wesleyancovenant.org. Click the media tab and you'll see it. Uh, we did an update for our weekly e-blast yesterday, April 18th, that kind of had a universal update on all the lawsuits going on in various parts of the country, all of that would still hold true except for one. Uh, late yesterday afternoon or early evening uh, in the Florida lawsuit involving 70 plus churches, uh, the judge after eight weeks finally issued a ruling. It was not the ruling we wanted. Uh, he, he dismissed the case uh, in its entirety. It was not a horrible ruling in the sense that it was very thorough. It's a 15-page ruling, and he went through a whole lot of the case law, both on a federal level and in a Florida level. And at the end of the ruling, if you read it, and you can go to our social media if you want to actually read the ruling. If you read the ruling at the end, he states that the plaintiff churches, in his opinion, actually have a case. And he felt, I would respectfully disagree, but he believes that his hands were tied by Florida case law and that he had to dismiss the case. But he he says in the ruling that it would this case would be ripe for the Florida District Court of Appeal and even the Florida Supreme Court to use to put Florida case law in sync with what U.S. Supreme Court case law is, which would be very helpful to the churches. The unknowable thing about the hat is that that process is, you know, we're probably talking two years or so of an appeal to to work its way up to the Supreme Court. And, I, you know, I don't know how many churches are willing to just to continue this this battle. It's been it's been long <laughs> and churches are tired and I I don't know if any of them will want to do that, but. You know, I, without releasing confidential information, the churches will meet Friday with their council, and the council have options for them to present to them. And we just need to pray for wisdom and discernment for those churches to, to discern what their best path forward is. And there's a menu of probably three different options that they'll have. So that, that was uh, interesting news. And so we're seeing some varied things happening across the country here as, as, uh, churches band together um, and have to look at ways to try to get out where the conference is making it difficult. Um, talk about North Carolina, North Georgia, what's happening with those situations? 
Western North Carolina was extremely unfortunate. So the the motion to dismiss hearing occurred and typically a judge at such a hearing will will you know in legal terms will say I, I'm going to take the case under advisement, which means I've heard the oral arguments, I'm going to read the briefs, I'm going to study the case law and I'll issue a ruling. And that in fact is what happened in Florida. It it was a you know, it took Judge Wright eight weeks to do that. We had hoped it would take him a little less, but he he obviously seriously went through all the case law and considered all the issues. That did not happen in Western North Carolina. The day of the hearing, the judge from the bench gave an oral ruling, not a written ruling. You know, Florida has a 15-page opinion. The judge gave an oral ruling that just said uh, something to the effect of, I don't have the transcript in front of me, but something to the effect of, I've been a lawyer for 50 years, and I know that if a church wants its property, the Book of Discipline tells it exactly how to go about doing just that. There is no need for a lawsuit. Case dismissed. Um, what the attorneys quickly discovered that uh, later that day, and the judge uh, did not disclose at, until it was brought up uh, a couple of days later, was that the judge is a lifelong United Methodist. And not only is he a lifelong United Methodist, he is the church treasurer and decades-long member of the church council of the church that he's at, the pastor of which is one of the more uh, progressive pastors in the Western North Carolina Conference. And the judge's district superintendent is the wife of one of the attorneys that was appearing before him that day in the case. So once that was determined and figured out later that that day, uh, on when that occurred on a Monday, on a Wednesday, the attorneys went back to have the oral ruling put in, put in paper. They requested the judge recuse himself. Uh, I'm told the judge uh, did leave the bench and call whatever Judicial Qualifications Commission exists in North Carolina to ask if he should recuse himself. He came back on the bench and denied the request and said he would not recuse himself. Um, I, you know, I, I am not a North Carolina lawyer. I'm a Florida lawyer. I, I, I it it stretches it stretches very thin anything that I could ever imagine. You know, being an acceptable reason not to recuse yourself. I I just can't. I can. I don't know why the judge didn't disclose that before the hearing and say I should not be hearing this case. So I the the churches there feel like they really got uh, a bad rap. You know that it that they. They got dealt a hand of cards that was really, really bad. Um, the ruling is just one piece of paper. It just simply says, you know, motion granted, and the judge signed it. No reasoning. Uh, so it's very is not helpful for an appeal. It doesn't mean that it can't be appealed, and it's, you know, it certainly could be. Um, I I think most churches are choosing to move into the 2553 process. Western North Carolina has a special annual conference uh, in the fall. And so it looks like they're going to do that. Uh, North Georgia, um, as probably most of our listeners know, has had a complete pause put in place since uh, the new year. Uh, there is no way for a church to depart the North Georgia conference. And the church's in my opinion, very valiantly tried to negotiate with Bishop Deese 
and the cabinet and the board of trustees in North Georgia. And for a while, they felt like they actually were moving somewhere until in March, it became very apparent that the other side was just, I, th I think the language we used to use about the protocol, they were not trustworthy conversation partners. That's probably a nice way to put it. And, and so the churches finally realized that that process is likely never to get restarted and put back on track. So 186 churches have filed suit against the North Georgia Conference. 185 have come together in one suit and then one individual church, Trinity on the Hill, United Methodist Church in Augusta, has also filed suit. And those are presently moving their way in the early days through the, the court system in North Georgia. And then finally, I know I'm talking a lot, forgive me, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania has filed what's called in, in Pennsylvania a writ of summons. It's kind of a pre-suit. It, it allows discovery to take place before the actual suit is filed. And so that writ of summons has been filed by over 30 churches, if I remember correctly. I believe that number's right, just going from memory. Uh, and so the 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 court processes for a writ of summons have started there. Baltimore Washington Conference has also filed suit. Uh, and as you may or may not note for our listeners, Baltimore Washington is charging 50% of the fair market value of the church's property. Eastern Pennsylvania has so many fees attached to their disaffiliation process. I actually have lost count of them, uh, the number that had been added, in making it almost impossible for churches in those conferences to ever leave. So it sounds pretty grim in, in a lot of places, at least from a, from a, a, a contemporary right now kind of focus where we're not seeing a lot of movement. Now, there are places where the process is moving along smoothly and, and things like that. And, and some conferences are working with churches that want to disaffiliate. But what, where do you see this going? I mean, is there any hope for resolution for some of these churches because the clock's going to run out on on uh, 2553 at the end of this year what other recourse might they have so 2553 obviously will expire at the end of this year for most of the churches in eastern pennsylvania baltimore washington certainly in north georgia they the, the lawsuit's really the only way they have to possibly get out. The For Eastern Pennsylvania and Baltimore, Washington, the costs associated with it are just prohibitive for most churches. Uh, for North Georgia, there is no process. You know, there, there is absolutely no way to leave uh, absent that. So it, it really is the only option that these, these folks have. It, it is not the option that I think anyone would ever want but it's the it's kind of the being backed into a corner option and you have no choice. Um, and so, uh, you know, you you just press on and you persevere and you you pray that God gives you the strength to endure uh, all the different things that come from a lawsuit. A, a friend of mine said about lawsuits, and I think it's a good analogy. He said it's like running in mud. And I, I think that's exactly what it's like. Mm. It, it's just a slog and it's it's not quick. There's nothing quick about the legal system, and you just have to have the, the willingness to persevere, and you have to know that a judge may not rule in your favor or a jury may not rule in your favor at some point. 
Well, and it's hard because we really didn't want it to come to this. And, and, and here we are. Yeah. Never. It, it did not have to be this way, Bob. And I mean, you know that better than, than most. But it, we had such a beautiful opportunity when we had the protocol uh, put in front of us. But, you know, that that is a that's a an opportunity that has gone by. And I, I, I have serious doubts that could ever be resurrected again. And I've heard many progressives say that, too. So uh, so we're left in some places with this being the only option, which is just extraordinarily sad. And it's not a good witness for the church, uh, but yet it's where we are. Uh, and you have to play the hand of cards you've been dealt. Do you think this sets up another kind of battle at General Conference in 2024? That is such a hard thing to know. I, it, it's not a secret that theological conservatives are not going to have a majority at General Conference in 24. Everything that any bishop has ever said to me is they want the disaffiliation process over and done with, and they do not want to see another window of it opened. They don't want the chaos to continue in their annual conferences. So I, I personally have my doubts. Uh, I, I actually, I have to tell people this sometimes. I actually am an optimist, uh, but I, I just, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot to be optimistic about there. Um, the part that is extremely unfair to me is for our friends outside of the United States, because the Council of Bishops errantly, in my opinion, have taken the position that paragraph 2553 is not operative outside of the United States. I, I don't know how they can in good conscience say that, but they have nonetheless decided that. So our African and Asian and European brothers and sisters have not really had a process to leave. Some have kind of broken the windows and jumped out anyway, but very few. And so I, I pray for a sense of justice at General Conference that some sort of process, at least for our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and Europe, will be put in place. I don't know if that will happen, but I, I we will work for that, and I, I pray that that will happen for them. Now, the other piece of that, Bob, is particularly in Africa, um, if the church changes the definition of marriage, for almost every country in Africa, the church's official position on marriage will then be uh, out of sync with that nation's laws, because almost every nation in Africa defines marriage purely as between one man and one woman. And so at that point, one begins to wonder if churches leave even if an annual conference were to attempt to sue them in an African court, it's hard to imagine an African judge siding with a church that violates that nation's laws. Interesting times that we live in. And we do pray for a heart of peace and pray for some resolution. And I think that's one thing that everyone can do is pray for this, for everyone involved and hoping for some kind of resolution so that there can be a heart of peace and People can go their their different ways with their different visions of of what it means to be the kingdom. Amen. Um, and I I actually said this to Bishop Bickerton, the current Council of Bishops president, when I spoke to him last fall, and he agreed with me at the time. Uh, I, yeah, it it does no one good to trap churches. No one wins through that. I mean, if you want to call a win that maybe the church fails and then the, you get to you know, seize the property and sell it. I don't call that a win. 
I, I just I do not see how that is a kingdom win. Uh, people, if you trap them, people will vote with their feet and they will leave. The the, the kingdom of God suffers. So there there's no there's no good from that. And we ought to, even if we disagree sharply over theological matters, we ought to be able to be rational enough to say it it's best if we just bless each other and allow those who don't want to stay to move on. And then and then the folks that are left behind can be aligned around their vision for what they think the church should be. And if they truly believe that vision, then they can move boldly towards it. And and they won't have anyone trying to stop them inside. Well, let's shift gears then a little bit. I know a lot of churches are still going through process, and I'm seeing a lot of churches that are voting at this point, and annual conferences are getting ready for their votes what kinds of advice or insight can you give based on what you're hearing from, because you're hearing from everyone, what kind of advice or insight can you give for, for churches and, and for uh, those who are coming up for annual conference votes, uh, things that they should be uh, looking for or things that they should be doing to prepare? I, so I, I do have a whole set of strategies that I've shared with our regional leaders. I, they don't all apply to every annual conference. Every annual conference is just a little different. They're, they have different personalities and different cultures. But if the climate in your annual conference is one in which progressive and traditionalist leaders can still sit down and talk, now is the time to sit down and say, hey, let's not have a public spectacle at our annual conference that just is a horrible witness for Jesus. Let, let's be those rational, mature disciples and say we can bless each other. So now's the time to have that conversation. Now is the time to have that conversation with the bishop of that annual conference and say we, we've we seen it happen in a couple of others. Arkansas was just a, a horrible annual conference. Virginia was virtual, but it Certainly a horrible outcome for one church that was blocked. Bishop, we don't want that to happen here. Can we sit down and talk ahead of time and figure out how not to have that happen? Um, you know, I, I I don't know if that can happen in every annual conference. We just we have there are a lot of toxic environments in, in annual conferences, but I, I think it's worth it. We, we've given some other strategies to regional WCAs to, to try to help as well. I'll probably, I hesitate to share all of that publicly, but not that it's any grand secret, but it just, you know, strategies, not always something you put on the front doorstep. Um, but we, we have a really good success rate so far. We've only had four churches out of 2,300 that have been blocked. One is too many, but we, we've we've had four. Um, I pray that cooler and calmer heads will prevail. We have from this starting this Saturday until the end of June of the 54 annual conferences, 42 of them will have disaffiliation votes that will be final. They will not have another annual conference in the second half of this year. So 42 of the 54 conferences all intents and purposes will be done by June 30th. What are, what are you hearing from local churches as they do their votes? I, I would assume that most of them, if there's not a fall annual conference, have probably gone through the cycle they need to get to because those annual conferences start next month, really. Uh, so any other kinds of things? I mean, I know we went through our cycle here in Mountain Sky, and uh, we have a number of churches who've been through the process 
And there are probably places around the connection where they've been through that. And what can they be doing in the interim, uh, perhaps as a local church? I know that there's, and we talked about this in our last series of episodes, sort of how to promote healing in a local church around those things. Um, you know, certainly that's been my experience. My church did not reach the disaffiliation threshold. So we've been really trying to take the season of Lent and Easter tide to do some healing work, recognizing that some people are going to go their separate ways. I mean, I'm going to be moving and, um, but, but really trying to leave things in a place where there is a heart of peace and blessing rather than fighting and storming out, out the door. What, what kinds of advice can you offer for local churches and this kind of, this is sort of the waiting. And as Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part, right? So, so uh, those that wait upon the Lord renew their strength. So what can we be doing in the interim? Waiting is the hard part for sure. I, I encourage everyone to the best that they can to try to be what, if, if you're a Stephen minister, you know what this phrase means, to be a non-anxious presence. Um, there's just way too much anxiety in the system. And so the more you can be a non-anxious presence in your local church and just help people to calm down, the better. Um, if, if a church has voted to disaffiliate and they're waiting for their annual conference, there's nothing left that they can do besides just be smart about things like should your church get targeted. You know, your your lay delegate and your clergy delegate should probably have some talking points ready if they need to get up at a microphone and and defend why that church should be voted out. That's smart. Other than that, um, try to be a non-anxious presence. Do your best, especially if it's been a fractious sort of debate at your church, to do that healing work that you were talking about. Uh, the church can't move forward, not well, not effectively, if it's in, in still in a... a a warring mindset. Um, and then if you've, if you have a reasonable certainty that, you know, your annual conference is going to vote you out, then, then it's time to start looking to the future. It, it's time to, you know, I, a friend of mine once preached a sermon where he talked about the fact that windshields are bigger than rearview mirrors. And there's a reason for that. Hmm. We need the rearview mirror. I mean, it's important. I mean, you don't really want to drive with that one, not for long. We need to know what's behind us, but we need the much bigger view of what's coming in front of us. So I, we need to learn from where we've been. Uh, we need to take the positives that we can, that we've contended for the faith and stood for what we know to be uh, a, a strong biblical orthodox doctrine. But then it's time to move forward and look to the future and, you know, Always my cards on the table. I hope it's with the Global Methodist Church. You know, the the WCA helped to birth it, and and that's where we hope folks will end up. Not everyone will, and that's fine. Um, wherever it is you're going to end up, it's time to look out the windshield and stop in the rearview mirror. Do the healing work you need to do, and then start setting vision to move forward to something else. It, it You can do that while you're waiting for your annual conference vote to take place. In fact, I would argue it's a great time to do it. Because I think it gives people something to look forward to, and it gives them a cause to rally around, and it helps redeem that waiting time where you feel like nothing's going on, and it helps you to feel proactive instead of just waiting to be reactive. And I, I think people, when they're proactive, 
feel more in control and generally have a, a better outlook in, uh, on the life of their church. So I, I would strongly encourage churches to begin to do that. Uh, you know, if you're moving into the global Methodist church, start thinking about rebranding. You're, you're not going to use the cross and flame anymore. So uh, unless you have a different logo, start working on that. You know, the global Methodist church, this would be true if you're an independent church too, we, I mean, if you want to use the old Methodist system of church council and staff parish and trustees and nominations and fine, you can. I mean, that, that's if you'd like that, use it. But maybe this is to, the time to say, hey, maybe we want to streamline how we govern ourselves. Maybe we want to use a, you know, one one leadership team that leads the whole church. The global Methodist church allows for that. The uh, an independent church certainly would. Maybe it's time to say, you know, th there's some new ministries that God is calling us to in this community so that we can reach people for Jesus. Let's start planning now. We don't have to wait for our annual conference. I, I think churches will find that the transition is so much easier if they'll do some of that work now. I've heard from some churches where they're banding together, even if they're not going, you know, together with to the GMC or something like that, but they're creating their own local networks as well and and those sorts of things. And the other thing that I have said to people on my end is that you really have to work through the grief and move past that. And I think you have to have some kind of ritual to mark that because otherwise, otherwise you're not a church that's going to attract new people because people do not want to come to somebody else's angry family reunion. You know, they just don't want to do that. So you have to you have to kind of work through that and say we're as you said we're moving forward and we have a vision for the future and we have a vision about how we're going to reach people with the gospel and we're not going to I think in some ways you almost have to have a ritual burial of this past like we don't want to do that anymore we're done with this fighting part of this whole process now we want to move into fruitfulness and I agree. To be able to commemorate that in some way, I think is going to be helpful for churches to do. I, you know, I have, I have always said, I, I understand funerals are a celebration of life of the person who's passed away, but I've always felt that funerals are for the living. Uh, they're for us to have that opportunity to mark that time and have closure and celebrate that life. And it doesn't mean that grief doesn't go on, but it, it's a, it's an important rite of passage, I think, when someone dies. Um, I think that's true for this event. And, uh, you know, every church will have a different way they do that, whether it's a worship service or a ministry event or whatever. But I, I, do, I agree with you, Bob. I, I think having some sort of way to say, all right, we, we've concluded this chapter. God is always doing a new thing. There is a new chapter. We want to move into it. Let's close this one and now move forward to the next one. I, I think it will help people with their grief. Yeah, and start shutting off the rage machine <laughs> that, yes. is, that is social yeah. media, you know, around that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. <laughs> I, uh, I, I go on social media so little these days uh, for my mental health. It's, it's just not good to read all of that. Uh, but what the old garbage in, garbage out, um, I just, I don't, I, I'm on it, but greatly restricted. Yeah. What's the old adage? Don't wrestle with pigs. You both get dirty, but the pig likes it. That's, exactly. that's sort of the that's right. governing principle of social media. In many it, ways. That sadly is true. That's right. <laughs> 
What what else can you tell us, Jay, uh, as uh, you're encouraging churches and pastors and and others in the midst of this process? Yeah, I would say if you are in those 10 annual conferences that are going to have a special annual conference in the second half of the year, it's not too late. So you you probably, I I say probably, I have not looked at all the deadlines for those conferences, but I I think it's likely that you still can get in the queue to get out. Uh, If you're in the 42 that are going to be done by June 30th, it probably is too late. Uh, And so if if you are now waking up and saying, "Hey, oh my, we've missed the deadline," I, you know, I, I don't have lots of good choices for you at that point. But it, it's time to consider those. Um, I, the the best news that I have, well, I'll quote John Wesley on his deathbed: "Best of all, God is with us, um, and there is a bright future." I am. I love getting to hear stories, and I hear lots of them, thankfully, of churches who make it out uh, through the disaffiliation process, um, have moved into the global Methodist church, and have, in you know, many cases, seen larger attendance at their worship services, seen new faces, participate in their ministries, uh, have been able to have more baptisms than they've ever been able to have before and welcoming new people into the faith. We we see these stories, quite honestly, consistently uh, in all parts of the country. So it's very exciting to see. Let's let's hold on to that hope. God is with us, and let's be very excited about the the new thing that God is doing. And and. And thank God that even us, even we get to be a part of of that new thing because it, there is new things. There are new things going on, and it's really, really good. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Jay, for the time. And uh, we'll have another update, I'm sure, coming up here very soon. A number of events coming up. And uh, once we get through all the uh, annual conferences, we'll touch base again. But thanks for joining us here on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. As always, you can check out more articles and information on the website at wesleyancovenant.org. We'll see you again next time here on the podcast. <laughs>